We're going under the hood with Dr. Sunshine, where we explore topics that are relevant to STEM professionals with intersecting identities. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 12 of Under the Hood. This is an online community where we uh, come together and we talk about our experiences as STEM people. It's a space for aspiring, current, or retired STEM students and professionals. And we can hear some of the firsthand accounts of the behind the scenes experiences of those you care about who have dedicated their lives to careers in STEM. And today I am super honored to interview Professor Heather Holmes. Hi, Heather. Hi, Sunny. <laughs> yeah. So everyone, uh, Professor Heather Holmes is an associate professor of chemical engineering at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. She earned her bachelor's and master's of science degrees and her doctorate degree in mechanical engineering with an emphasis in environmental fluid dynamics. Professor Holmes's research group uses ground-based sensors, atmospheric models, and satellite remote sensing to investigate atmospheric physics, air pollution sources, transport and dispersion, and provide data for human health and public policy assessments. She has an extensive history of collaborative research um, with the objective of improving the understanding of air pollution exposure and understanding regulatory impacts on ambient air pollution concentrations. So, so we're gonna get into all of the rest of the wonderful parts of your story and your bio that isn't captured in your professional uh, description there. So. As you all may be able to deduce, Pro Professor Holmes, Heather and I, we are in the same research community. In fact, um, we've been collaborators since 2012. So it has been just over a decade since I met Heather at the Georgia Institute of Technology where she was a postdoctoral scholar and I was a new graduate student. So there's lots of history here. And I also wanna take this time to publicly thank you for supporting me when very few would. Um, I think you've always had faith in me. And I'll tell you, I'll tell the audience, I didn't know what a bold woman was until I met Heather. Watching her maneuver in the research space showed me what a bold woman was. And my jaw hit the floor every time she spoke at group meeting. And with no further ado, Heather, let's jump right into this conversation. This is right. great. Thank you for inviting me, Sunny. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy hearing about this. So um, as my first question, Heather, um, you studied as an undergraduate student at Montana State University. What? influenced your decision to attend MSU and what was your experience like as a mechanical engineering student? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so 
I think probably the biggest reason I attended MSU, I mean, technically it was for skiing. <laughs> so I grew up in Pocatello, Idaho. It's a small town. I think now it's on the order of 60,000 people. It was about 50,000 people when I grew up. Uh, and I skied a ton. My senior year in high school, I structured my life so that I went to the university part-time in the morning and then every afternoon I could go up to the ski hill and go skiing and so that was that to be on it like full disclosure I chose my undergraduate school based on where I could ski and so um I looked I actually didn't even look at that many schools I looked at going to Utah State in Logan and that was because my dad told me they had a good engineering program but He's an attorney, so I don't know what he knows about engineering school. Um, and I looked into Bozeman because we had a family friend that was a professor up there, and we went up for a visit once, and I just thought the mountains were amazing, and I decided someday I'm going to live here. And by the time I was about a senior, I had chosen engineering as a major, senior in high school, and MSU had a good engineering school, and so I just felt like all the stars were kind of aligning. It was beautiful. It was about four hours away from my hometown. So far enough away that I could get away, but still close enough. I could go home if I wanted to and um, I could study engineering. So I, I felt like it was just a good fit and it was only 30,000 people. So when you grow up in a small town, you get terrified of moving to big towns. And so Bozeman in terms of a city was also a good size for me. Um, and then in terms of engineering, so I went there thinking I would be an electrical engineer. And then I decided that electrical engineering was all math and I couldn't like physically see anything I was doing. And so I switched to mechanical engineering and um, it was a really good experience. I learned a lot and I liked my classes, but I will say it was pretty interesting because I didn't feel like I was the norm meaning in a class of about 100 students, there were two or three women. So I could probably list off like all the females I had classes with as an undergrad, which I think would be two. <laughs> but I, can, I couldn't tell you all the males that I went to class with. And then the other interesting thing was that a lot of people were choosing engineering as a profession because of the income they could make coming out of it. And so a lot of my colleagues were looking at trying to go work for Boeing because Boeing was one of the big recruiters from MSU. And I was doing it just because I like to build things. So there was kind of two ways where my mentality was just a little bit different from my peers. Um, but overall, I would say my undergrad experience was great. I got a good education and I skied a bunch. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I will say I was terrified when you when you told me back in the day that you were one of three women in oh. the program. Um, but folks, you're gonna understand that Professor Holmes is super resilient <laughs> and very intrinsically motivated. So something like that, she's able to really persevere under those kinds of circumstances. So I applaud that. Okay. And then my next question is: so you mentioned growing up in Pocatello. So how did growing up in what's known as the Intermountain West influence where you chose to study in graduate school? Yeah, this is also a really good question. So after my undergrad, I ended up um, 
I actually really wanted to be a ski bum. So I, I got an undergraduate degree in engineering and then I went and worked as um, like a lift ticket checker at a ski hill in Oregon. And that was pretty short lived. I realized after two months of making $8 an hour that I should maybe use my engineering degree and, and like make a better salary. And so I worked as a research chemical engineer, even though my degree was in mechanical engineering at a like small privately held pharmaceutical company in Bend, Oregon. And I did that for two years and it was really cool scientifically. I learned a lot. I was exposed to a ton of chemistry, but I did not want to be working in the pharmaceutical industry. And at that point I had two years work experience specific to this industry, including um, I was like certified to work in GMP facilities and I knew all the clean room procedures and stuff like that. And so um, I actually chose to go to graduate school so I could make a career pivot and not, so I didn't choose to go to graduate school, like go to graduate school. I was using it as a way to better, better kind of like narrow my career path. As an undergrad, I really wanted to be an HVAC engineer. So I wanted to design like heating and cooling systems, which is so random, but, but it's what I wanted to do. And my favorite classes in undergrad was thermo. So I decided to go to grad school in like thermo and fluids and I really thought I would end up going to grad school and getting a master's degree so I could come out and um, make engines like I wanted to design car engines or airplane engines or motorcycle engines um, so that's kind of how I decided to go to grad school and then my algorithm for figuring out where to go was trying to figure out where I could go that would cost me the least amount of money because I was expecting to pay for my tuition. And then when I was going to grad school, I decided I wanted to become a bike racer. <laughs> so I chose grad school based on cycling and then tuition costs. And so I like had this like spreadsheet and I applied to eight different schools and getting funding kind of wasn't on my radar. Um, I didn't really have like a close connection to somebody that had um, advanced degrees in the STEM field with the exception of where I was working. There was a lot of PhD scientists where I was working in Oregon. So a couple of those people kind of gave me their advice, but most of the engineers had uh, bachelor's degrees. So I didn't really know that like I could go to school and get a stipend and get my tuition paid for and things like that. Um, so I had three schools offer um, funding for me out of the ones I applied to. And uh, one actually was in Vermont. I think it was the only school outside of like Western North America that I applied to. And um, University of Utah offered me a position and I, it wasn't even on my radar to move back to this area. Pocatello is two hours North of Salt Lake City. And um, I don't know, I just visited campus. The funding situation was great. I got a campus tour by a professor that also went to school at Montana State and also really liked to ski. And so it kind of just all fit together. And um, they did not have a cycling team when I applied. And so that's, I didn't take my application that seriously. But then the first year I went to University of Utah, they did get a cycling team and so I started riding bikes too. So I got, I kind of got everything I was looking for. Good tuition. I got some funding. 
Um, they have a good thermofluids program at University of Utah, so I could study specifically that, and then I could ski and ride my bike. And that's the beginning. That's the beginning <laughs> of, of what I find to be a pretty interesting career. Um, so that's interesting. So you graduated from University of Utah in the mechanical engineering fluids program. Mm -hmm. And then um, we're kind of moving, not in chronological order here, but um, I want to talk about your Georgia Tech postdoctoral experience. So there, there is some history before that, but we'll get to that in just a second. Mm -hmm. So how, so you were a postdoc in um, Ted Russell's research group in civil and environmental engineering mm -hmm. um, for just under two years. And can you tell the audience how that your time as a postdoc prepared you um, and enriched your skills and teaching uh, practices before you joined the faculty at the University of Nevada, Reno? Yeah, um, actually, so that postdoc experience really, so one, it helped me decide to apply to faculty positions. And then two, it gave me really good student engagement opportunities. So I learned a lot about how to interact with students. Um, and then three, I had like, in terms of research, I feel like that gave me really good exposure to the research I wanted to be doing. Uh, so the interesting thing, like I was very hesitant to actually take that position because I didn't wanna live in Atlanta, you know, rural community 50,000 people <laughs> from Idaho moving <laughs> to Atlanta seemed a little bit scary um I was worried about just like being in such a big city and then also I didn't want to be somewhere what was really polluted even though I was studying air pollution and um I mean Ted was so fantastic on my interview call I told him about these concerns and you know, he said, I'll walk outside and describe what the air pollution looks like you today for you today. <laughs> so he literally did that. He went to the roof and he like described it. And I was like, ah, oh, that actually doesn't sound that bad. Um, so I went there and I told him from the beginning that my goals were to figure out whether or not I wanted to be a professor and to learn how to mentor and work with students. And he said, I I promise I will give you those experiences. And he just let me kind of explore who I was as a researcher, but also let me kind of explore different ways to work with students. And so I will forever be thankful for that experience because I think without that student mentoring experience, like in a pretty low risk situation, right? Like if I messed it up, he was gonna fix it. <laughs> and so it, I didn't, and I loved it. Like he, like his students were great, Sunny, you're part of that. Um, and it was just like, we had so much fun with the research. We were doing really cutting edge work and everybody was a joy to work with. And so it really gave me good opportunities of kind of figuring out who I was gonna be as I move my career forward. That's awesome. So some nice takeaways here is that for those of you that are interviewing for postdoc positions, you can talk to your potential advisor and talk about 
some of your concerns, expectations for the role that may not be part of the job description. And that's nice to know that Ted, you know, adapted the role yeah. for what you wanted to do. And boy, did you have a lot of students to work <laughs> with. <laughs> so at that time, we were a, a mega group and um, that's some pretty intense hands-on training for mentoring. You also got to teach, right? He so I didn't get my own class, but he knew that um because so I decided after about a year that I would try to apply to faculty positions. And I was so introverted as a grad student that I refused every teaching opportunity possible. So I never, I never TA'd, I never taught, I didn't do anything as a grad student in terms of um interaction with other students. And so Ted knew that for me to apply to faculty positions with like zero teaching experience um, would be a little bit difficult. And so he let me teach his courses or give his lectures when he was out of town. And the cool thing was, which is so now as a professor, I understand why he did this. Um, so when you have like a grad student or a postdoc taking over your lectures for you, there's two ways you can do it. One is you can give all your lecture notes to that person and have them teach what you would teach, which is really good to do for somebody that's new to teaching and, you know, wants to like gradually get into it. Ted gave me no notes. So he made me form my own lectures <laughs> to be able to give the lectures, which was perfect because then I learned what it meant to actually like develop a lecture prior to having my own course as a as a faculty member. So that was also a, a kind of unique thing. So even though he didn't give me my full own course, he did let me develop my own lectures for for some of his classes. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I do something similar now for for my students and postdocs. Um, if it's somebody that is more experienced, I'll have them develop all of their own lecture notes. Whereas if it's somebody that's really brand new, I'll, I'll give them materials. Those, those are good tips. Yeah. So, and I found your lectures to always be super interesting. Thank you. <laughs> so we're going to, that was your Georgia Tech experience. And obviously you went on to have a faculty position pretty successful. And so we're going to go back in time before you went to Georgia Tech. Okay. So um, one thing that was super impressive to me was your international research experiences. So can you tell us about your position at the University of Hamburg and then your time in South Korea and how those experiences informed your present day Holmes Lab and your management style? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I feel very fortunate to have had um, international experience with like working um, because every culture works differently and it's super interesting to try and like learn about those differences. And so I was in South Korea for about four months as a graduate researcher. And then I was at the University of Hamburg for about a year as a postdoc. And I ended up in South Korea because um, I have always wanted to live in Asia. And I was like, I thought for sure that after grad school, I would end up in Asia forever. And um, I, I still love Asia. I love Asian cultures. I have a lot of um, interest in them. And 
my experience in South Korea was awesome, but the system there was very hierarchical. And so you kind of have to like respect authority by age there, which was, um, you know, in the US, we don't, we're supposed to like culturally have respect for our elders here. But I don't think that goes into the workplace nearly as much as it does in a place like South Korea. And so I decided that, okay, maybe, maybe that wasn't the best fit for me. And so then I ended up wanting to live in Europe. And so then while I was in Korea, I was looking for postdoc positions in Europe, and I ended up getting this position in Germany. And um, that was also a really good experience. Yeah, so about 10 years ago, I would have been in Germany. And um, at that time, Germany also had um, kind of a hierarchical system, very different than how it played out in South Korea. But uh, in Germany, and I don't know if it's still this way or not, but when you're a faculty member, you actually start your faculty position like under another professor. And so you have to kind of work your way through the academic system. Whereas like, I joke with people that I think the US might be the only country where they will give somebody that is less than 30 years old a million dollars and say, go do with it what you want and be successful. Um, you, you get a lot of intellectual freedom in, in the US uh, as a faculty member. And so that was a lot of what kind of drove me back to the US. Um, I liked the living culture in Germany, but the working was um, just not as much intellectual freedom as, as I would get in the US. But the cool thing about both of those experiences is it kind of um, showed me how, like you really have to respect how someone was brought up to understand how to communicate with them, meaning, you know, if if somebody was brought up in South Korea, they're always going to be taught to respect people by age, which means if I said, oh, you have to go email this really senior professor and get this from them, that's going to be a very scary task for them to do. And so I try to, um, I guess, kind of understand where people are coming from maybe a little bit more when I'm running my group and then understand also that Everyone will have a different upbringing. I mean, international students for sure, depending on what country they come from, but even from across the US, depending on where you were raised and who raised you, you will have a very different background. And so the things that are comfortable for you versus uncomfortable for you will be different. So I, I think that those experience, experiences taught me to kind of pay attention to those, to figure out better what somebody would specifically need from me as their mentor or advisor that's really that's awesome being able to adapt to each of your students' needs yeah I don't know if I'm great at it but I really try to pay attention to it you do try and based on what I'm seeing online in um PhD Twitter sphere the students are sometimes pretty disgruntled at their graduate student experience largely due to not having this that empathetic support from their advisor so at yeah. least being intentional about how you manage them or how you support them um perhaps they will be happy to hear that <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and so 
Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, thank you for talking about your cultural awareness. And so I'm interested in knowing how you have navigated, you know, student mentorship and student recruiting, um, given kind of the size and scope and location of some of the programs that you you've taught at. So can you take us yeah. through your thought process? For sure. I think this is an like I think this is a great question, especially for anybody that is um, starting out their faculty position or considering going into academia or changed institutions, right? Like one of the largest parts of the, our jobs as professors is finding students to work with us. And I mean, essentially my success hinges on my students, right? And I've been so lucky to have really fantastic um, students and postdocs work with me and um, finding those, it takes a lot of effort and energy to, to find those people to work for you. And so my biggest, the thing that helped me the most when I was starting out was um, leveraging connections from other faculty members or previous mentors. And so, for example, every time I have an open position, I send it to Ted. Um, I'll send it to my PhD advisor, Eric Pardiak, who's at the University of Utah, and just try to use their networks to recruit, which um, I think, I mean, it's brought me one postdoc, <laughs> which was good. Uh, so it's harder because um, they were definitely at bigger programs when I started out. I was at University of Nevada, Reno, so it was hard to draw people from one of those pro bigger programs to there. And then um, the other thing was, is when I was in Reno, when I got there, another professor had a student working for him and she wanted to get into the types of work that I did. So he recommended her to me and that ended up being a great fit. So if you know faculty members in your department or even at your school that have kind of similar research areas, leveraging those connections is also very good. And so the other way I've done that here, so now I'm at University of Utah and um, I'm fortunate because my research area spans like, I don't even know, let's say like eight different departments on campus is what I could draw students from. Uh, but so my primary department now is chemical engineering. I have an adjunct appointment in mechanical engineering and I also have an adjunct appointment in atmospheric sciences. So I've been really fortunate because here, their atmospheric sciences program is really well known for mountain meteorology. So it attracts students from all over the country. And I currently have two uh, students that are in or affiliated with that program. And one of them, I just got word of mouth through the faculty in that department who said, oh, you know, Heather does things similar, even though she's not in this department, you should go talk to her and see if she has any open positions. Um, I mean, I've done the job postings also, like I've posted them on, um, you know, Met jobs or ES jobs. So job boards, I think, are a really good way to try and get your information out there. I did get one of my PhD students that way. The other thing is, once you have a graduate student, if that graduate student likes you, <laughs> word of mouth is really good because then they tell other graduate students that they're in classes with about you. And so that's the other way to kind of network and and things like that. But yeah, student recruitment can be a big, a big challenge for sure. 
Wow. And those are good tips. So the job boards and word of mouth and actually being affiliated with other programs. Um, I do have a, an impromptu spinoff question. Yeah. What? Yeah. So how were your adjunct positions in those departments initiated? And did you, were there any things, <sighs> things you had to do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, the, Fortunately, when I was at my previous institution, University of Nevada, Reno, um, I I also had adjunct appointments there or like affiliations with different programs. So I kind of knew that it was common for people to do something like that. Um, and there I was affiliated with like environmental sciences and health and then the atmospheric sciences program and my home department there was physics. And then when I came here to University of Utah, um, because my PhD is in mechanical engineering, I know several of the faculty over there. And so uh, that one kind of happened because they were interested in drawing me into their research. And so they wanted me to like participate in graduate seminar series and things like that. So then they asked me actually if I would apply for a, or if I was interested in applying for an adjunct appointment. And um, the procedure there and in atmospheric sciences are pretty similar. So I'll say how I did that in a second. For atmospheric sciences, that one was um, a pretty clear overlap because for the previous six or seven years, I'd been teaching in atmospheric sciences. And um, I really, so that one, I think I instigated because I was like, I really want to stay engaged in this field. And there's a lot of great faculty over there and my research overlaps. And I knew that potentially the, some of the research I have funded requires more of a meteorology focus. And so I knew I would potentially have to get a student over there. So I knew that with having a student over there, I would have to have an adjunct appointment to be able to advise that student. So then I asked that department um, I know the department chair, luckily, and so I asked him if it would be okay if I applied, and they were super enthusiastic. So the process for me doing that, um, here, every department does it annually on the fiscal year cycle, and I have to submit a letter to the department telling them why I want the adjunct appointment along with my CV, and then for my renewal each year, I tell them how I participated in activities within their department. And then they just, every every year they have one faculty meeting where they vote on these adjunct appointments for people that want them. And that's kind of the process here. So it, it seems like a lot of work, but in the end, it's pretty, it's pretty quick. And it's been a great way to engage with colleagues across campus, um, especially like if you feel like in your home department, you know, there's only two or three professors that do what you do or overlap with you. That's a great way to get connected across campus and like get on email lists and find out what's happening and get students sent your way. Like, you know, if they don't have funding in their department, but they have a good student that they want to keep, they're like, oh yeah, go talk to this professor. Maybe they'll fund you. So um, yeah, it's a good, for me, it's been a good, a good thing to, to do. That's great to know because for someone starting out, maybe they're a first year professor, getting affiliate, affiliations in other departments may be um, uh, a not so clear process. Um, thanks for sharing. 
Yeah, I will. I will say just one little piece of advice also is that um, so my home department definitely prefers if I have students in my home department. So this is the one thing to kind of pay attention to. So I try to keep a balance where the majority of my graduate students are in my my home, <laughs> the department that actually pays me money <laughs> to work there. But but I think it's fine, you know, if you're advising students outside your department in other departments that can bring a skill set to your research lab that's important and that you value. So I think a lot of it, so if it ends up being, if somebody does this and they get pressure from their home department, um, my advice would be to make it very clear about how this skill set is growing your research group, which will benefit your home department as well. So my department has been very supportive and and stuff, but for someone starting out, that might be one of the things that you just kind of want to like have in the back of your mind. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. So that tees us up for this last question in regard to your research. So you're, you span across atmospheric sciences, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, and probably a couple others, <laughs> environmental health. So can you, uh, enlighten us about your current research thrusts and what are the transformative changes that you hope to see as a result of the work? So if I had to like really concisely state my research thrusts, I would say um, that I study the physics and the chemistry of the atmosphere and with a focus on air pollution and then also integrating that into human health studies. So that's my like concise <laughs> description um, with that, I focus on the Western U.S. I was born here, raised here, lived here for the majority of my life. And so I think um, just having the background of how the air pollution has impacted communities in the Western U.S. has given me like this very personal motivation to want to um, study that. Um, we also have unique air pollution problems. So our air pollution problems in the Western U.S. are not the same as what they would be in the Eastern US. And so that's also a little bit different. So the, the two aspects where I would like to see transformative change with the research that my group does is, one is really um, improving our fundamental knowledge of the physical and chemical processes that happen during, um, I don't know, unique atmospheric conditions that occur in the Western US, I guess I would say. So that would be 10. For anybody that knows me, they know I love temperature inversions. <laughs> so uh, yeah, one of those is temperature inversions. And so scientifically, they are very interesting. Like the physics of them is very unknown. The chemistry of them is very unknown. So fundamentally understanding those processes is uh, where I would like to see transformative change. But then like the other thing that's really important to me and um, I think is really kind of what shifted my focus between my master's degree and my PhD, and it's kind of driven my career choices, is um, I really wanna see impactful change for communities. I want my scientific findings to be able to be used in places to figure out who's being impacted, what ecosystems are being impacted, and how can we protect uh, those people and the environment. And so that's one of the main drivers uh, behind what I do is really wanting to see change for communities. Yeah, thank you very much for telling us about your research. 
I also find it to be very interesting. Obviously, <laughs> we still collaborate. <laughs> yeah, we're having a lot of fun with the grant that Professor Holmes is leading right now that is, is sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. Yeah. Yes. You know all about my passion for <laughs> the wintertime temperature inversion. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, yes. Um, really interesting work, y'all. So I may link some papers in the description box that you all can check out. And so thank you for telling us um, a bit about your background and research history. And so I'd like to take this opportunity to learn more about the promotion and tenure process mm -hmm. in this conversation. So can you explain to us unpromoted junior faculty, like what's the purpose and the procedures that are involved in a mid-career review and compare and contrast that with the tenure review specifically for STEM disciplines? So I was a faculty member at University of Nevada, Reno for seven years plus or minus six months I'm not sure and then I shifted to University of Utah two years ago so I have been through one um, mid-career review or third-year review and I've actually technically now been through the tenure review process twice so I am a tenured faculty member at University of Utah although that was a pretty that was a very shortened tenure review process so um, I applied for tenure here the, the year I started, and then it was granted in my second year. So, um, but I still had to fill out all the same like paperwork and everything. So in terms of procedures, I've gone through that twice. So for the mid-career review, um, this one I find really interesting because I feel like the approach on that is not standardized across institutions and is also not standardized across departments or colleges within one institution. So um, what I did for my third year review or mid-career review might be a little bit different than what somebody else has to do, um, but I think the purpose of it is still the same. So I had to submit basically all of the same materials I would have submitted for my tenure package. So it was basically like a test trial run of me submitting my tenure package. And then my department also requested one external letter for our mid-career review, which I think most, most places, as far as I've heard from peers and colleagues and things, most places don't do that. Um, I'm happy that my institution did that because I did not realize how much weight those external letters took um, in that department um, until I had that mid-career review and um, the the department's kind of evaluation of me really was primarily based on that one external letter. So that kind of gave me a little bit of a wake-up call. So I'd say the purpose of the mid-career review is um, a way, it's like a checks and balances of some sort, I guess, where both the faculty member and the department get to kind of weigh in on how the progress is going and it's an opportunity to shift if something uh, isn't going right so one example that i've seen is say um, somebody starts a faculty position in a department where there's not a lot of senior faculty and so the new professor ends up having a lot of service activities designated to them 
And when you submit your mid-career review, if you have a lot of service, like your time commitments are going to service activities for the department or the university, um, that kind of can give that department chair a little bit of a, you know, wake up call, like, oh, I got to stop asking so-and-so to do all this service because they really need to focus on other things. Um, so for me personally, my shift really came in um, better understanding the purpose of the external letters, but I'll hold off on that. And then um, the procedures for the 10-year review for me were very similar for as what I did for my third year review. And um, I will admit my, I feel like my tenure package probably had the least amount of words you could probably put in a tenure package and still get tenure. Meaning a lot of people write um, lengthy materials in their package. Uh, I think my statement was a page, page and a half for research, teaching and service. Um, and all I did is I just went in and quantified, like I have this many papers, I graduated this many students. And so to me, like a, that short statement, as long as you're able to get all of your metrics out, that is key. Like quantifying as much as possible will help your external letter writers put that information into their letter. So how, you know, how many grants have you applied for? How many grants were you awarded? How many dollars have you brought in? Um, how much goes to your research group versus joint research groups? Um, so that was kind of my procedure. I did include though, like my three page research statement and my one page teaching philosophy also in my tenure package, in addition to that kind of summary section, but that's kind of about, about all I put in. I think, when I submitted at University of Utah, they have a much, they have a really structured system. And so I think for them, I did submit more text that describe those activities, but but not a ton more. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for explaining that and explaining the differences between Nevada and Utah. And I just had a follow-up question in terms of the external letter at mid-career in Nevada. Did you give them a list of names and they chose? Oh, yes. So for that letter, I did give them a list of names and, and they chose. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. And I will just throw it out there. I just did my mid-career. I just submitted my materials. And I won't know the response until next spring. But we were given a 10-page minimum for our summary, which includes the research teaching and service okay. and also a broad summary but they also recently instituted a teaching dossier option mm -hmm. not an option <laughs> <laughs> and my teaching dossier was 161 pages long <laughs> yeah yeah because we can submit syllabi and course oh uh, materials. so so I did also submit I think my total package in length was on the order of maybe 150 pages and it had like all my teaching evaluations and my syllabi and um things like that i had oh so my other like major suggestion for people doing this is 
if you can find somebody in your department that is willing to share their package with you, get it. If you can't or you don't feel comfortable, ask um, someone else that you know that has been through the tenure process, even at a different institution, to see what um, what they're doing and ask your peers or a colleague or a friend even to read through your materials. So I look at this kind of like, um, I don't even like you, like you wouldn't submit a journal article without somebody else reading through it first, right? Or your co-authors. So this is kind of similar, right? Like you're submitting written content for somebody else to assess whether or not you keep your job. <laughs> so asking for help is totally reasonable. And so that is my, um, that is my advice. Thank you. That's a good reminder. <laughs> it's like hard to know in that situation that asking for help is fine and that somebody even outside your institution would be able to give you, I mean, everybody's got an opinion, right? But that's the thing is your external letters come from people that have opinions and everybody's opinion is going to be different. So what people gravitate toward in your package might be different. So I think it doesn't, it doesn't have to be somebody at your institution. I think somebody, somebody else um, could still give you good advice. Well, thank you. Thank you for reiterating that. And so that kind of segues to the next question. And you said what people gravitate to is different, but all I'm hearing through the grapevine is that people are just looking at your external letters. So can you please talk to us about how important the letters are and how we go about choosing the letter writers? This is, um, so when I started out, I knew these letters were important, but I don't think I actually knew these letters were important. <laughs> so so um, I, I think how, like how much weight is given to these letters varies again by like department and potentially by university. But um, for me, I started out in a department where there were not other people with uh, research areas like mine, meaning I had people, my peers in my department that were evaluating my materials you know, they don't really have a way to evaluate them because they don't do what I do. They don't publish where I publish. It was really hard for them. So they had to put a lot of weight in those external letters because that was how they could decide whether or not I was good at what I was doing. So um, I, th I think the external letters actually at a, in a lot of places do carry a lot of weight. And um so then I think figuring out, I, most places let you provide a list of names and it's usually kind of like a 50-50 split. They'll take half the letter writers from your list, half the letter writers from a list that they come up with. And um, knowing who to put on that list is critical. And that was the piece, like I knew people that were doing research in my area that I could put on that list but I didn't fully process the fact that I needed to know what they thought of me <laughs> before putting them on that list. So it's important like when you're, so you go to conferences and you network and things like that, but you almost have to kind of like network in a way where you get some feedback on how the person thinks you're doing in your career and how your research is going and 
things like that. Um, I will say like, I'm super introverted. I'm getting less introverted with time. But um, so for me, that wasn't something that I was naturally good at. So if you're say like you have to get 10 year letters right now and it's been COVID and you haven't networked and you're like, who am I going to come up with? Um, I think looking at, um, you know, look at the person's institution and see what other people have done that have recently gotten tenure and kind of evaluate your output to that. So like if you've published a similar amount, if you have a similar graduation rate or uh, things like that, then potentially that person is going to view you favorably versus if you're if you don't have those same metrics, then maybe don't don't choose that person. Try try and research someone else. So that's um, yeah, the external letter writers. That's a very for a lot of STEM people that are very introverted. I think that that's a unique aspect of the tenure and promotion process. Yeah, thank you. Even extroverted, I'm extroverted, and I'm worried about these letters. Okay, <laughs> so but that that's something I didn't think of. Go to the institution's website of your letter writer and look at who just recently got promoted to evaluate what their standard is at their institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is solid so advice. A lot of times the letter writers, I think, write the letter from the standpoint as to whether or not you would get tenure at their institution. Um, I mean, th they're usually also given like guidelines for tenure at your home institution, but it's also like things do, everybody does things based on their familiarity, right? So if somebody's been writing departmental letters for people for 20 years and they're used to certain metrics, that's, you know, they might naturally look for those similar types of metrics in your own package. So um, I, I think, and this is more for like selecting letter writers if you're like, if you don't know who you would pick. Thank you. Thank you. And just one um, follow-up question. Can your letter writers be people that you collaborate with? So this also varies by department and institution. Most, so when I was at UNR, it could not be anyone that I collaborated with. So, and here, there's a little bit more gray area here. So what my suggestion would be is um, your, so your department has to pick people to write these letters for you. That's actually coming up with a list of who should write letters for someone else that's not in your field is actually a really hard task. <laughs> so my suggestion on that is, um, I would give names to your department that would be harder for them to find. Meaning if your department allows like a colleague of yours to be a letter writer and it's easy to see from your materials that this person is your colleague, let your department pick that person as, as your letter instead of you giving that name. Uh, but, uh, but if it's hard to tell from your, like if it's say you just started collaborating with this person, like maybe you have no papers and you have no funded projects, but you've submitted a proposal together, um, then give that name for sure if your department allows you. And that's a situation where your department might allow you because you haven't published yet together. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that this is a helpful dialogue for anyone that will be going up for promotion in the next one to three years. 
And last but not least, in our conversation about promotion and tenure, if you could go back and talk to Professor Holmes in 2014, what advice would you tell yourself to get you prepared for the promotion and tenure process? Um, other than get better at picking external letter writers, <laughs> like that that one for sure. But um, But I think for me personally, the most important thing is um, you have to do things for yourself. Meaning in this job, it's super easy to get lost in expectations, right? So you have expectations of what your department chair wants. You have expectations of what your uh, colleagues in your professional society think you should be doing. You have expectations of maybe what a mentor is telling you to do. Um, you have expectations that your students have for you, right? So I think there's so much input of what you should be doing. If you did everything that every single human told you to do, you would need like four of you, right? To do to do all of those tasks. There's no way you can do everything that everyone expects of you. So I think, so for me personally, like doing the tasks that make me the most happy make me better at my job so um like we spend so much time and energy in this position that if i'm gonna devote like extra hours on a weekend or um, extra hours in an evening i want it to be on something i truly enjoy doing so i try to go toward funding opportunities that appeal to me like this is the work I want to be doing um this is related I mean it's not always a hundred percent right like I'm not saying you only 100% do what you want to do but I feel like if you're doing like tasks where you only 20% want to do them and that becomes your majority it's going to be really hard for you to have fulfillment and then it's going to be really hard for you to perform well and then it's going to be really hard for you to be successful so I think, yeah, I think my advice to myself would have been take care of yourself, do what feels right for you and what helps you and makes you feel happy. And then the rest kind of falls into, into place. Thank you. So you can't do it all and do what makes you happy at the end of the day. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's great advice. Well, folks, for those of you that know the podcast, this is the part of the conversation where we go under the hood talk about the nuanced things that don't get talked about in stem communities so kind of the first thing i want to ask you about heather is about your athletic career so you were formerly an international triathlon and mountain biking competitor and you were really great <laughs> <laughs> How on earth did you manage that career alongside your research career? So this is a good, like very good question. And a very, I'd say this is like deep into my past now because I haven't been competing for quite a while. But when we met, I still was. And um, yeah, it's so, I, I actually get asked this question quite a bit. Um it was so I so I raced professionally on a mountain bike team for four years while I was a PhD student and then I got hurt and that's actually why I stopped racing mountain bikes professionally and then I moved to Germany and decided I was going to do these off-road triathlons um 
I still raced those as a pro, but I wasn't on the same, like I didn't have a, maybe one year I had a team sponsor, but I wasn't like drawing a lot of money from that. That was, it was, it was more for fun. Whereas when I was mountain bike racing, I, I was on a pro team. Um, I wasn't making, making money, but it wasn't costing me money. And so I was, I was doing, I was doing okay. Um, and so I feel like there were moments in my life during that time period where I felt like I wasn't doing either one great, right? Like I felt like if I wasn't a PhD student, maybe I would be a better bike racer. Or, you know, if I wasn't racing bikes, I could put more time into my research. But but all in all, like across the board, I think it actually really worked for me because it gave me good outlets. I loved doing research. I loved riding my bike. Both of those things would never go the best all the time, right? So if I went to a race and I had a terrible race, I would just be like, well, I have this great paper coming out from my field experiment that I set up and that's making me really happy. Or, you know, if research is just, I think I had six months where I was caught up in like not understanding atmospheric mercury and it was like really like a roadblock in some of my PhD research but I was like I'm gonna go for eight hour long bike rides and not think about this and, and get a break and so I think the balance of the two was really good for me and then also I had to be really good about time management so I was I think I was maybe even more productive than if I wasn't doing either one of those things because I had specific hours where I had to work and get it done so that I could go train. And so I think that was also a really good thing to have. That's excellent. So having an outside passion is okay. Oh, I think having an outside passion is almost like, I mean, I still ski a lot and I still ride bikes a lot and things like that. I just definitely don't do it on the same level. Whereas if I was doing it on the same level, I'd be forced to go outside and ride my bike, which maybe sometimes I need that. Like, like go do this right now because it will make your brain function better when you're trying to work. Yeah. I think outside passions are, are really important because they also help you take care of yourself back to like making sure you're taking care of yourself outside passions, no matter what it is. I mean, maybe you like aspire to be a really great chef and you cook really amazing food. I mean, that's probably a great, I would really benefit from somebody having that as their passion. But yeah, I mean, anything, I think it's important to have a, have a passion. That's great advice. That's great advice. So for those of us that are in research and we do have the flexibility to do that, um, I recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, the next question is a bit personal and, um, thank you for coming on and talking to us about this, but what are some of the unexpected challenges that you faced, um, as a, an academic, as well as being a member of the LGBT community? Yeah, this is a good question and kind of an interesting question. So I like so the first thing is what, what I really like about this series that you're doing is you're, you're working with intersecting identities as well. So for me, it's actually been kind of hard sometimes to parse out like being a woman versus being a lesbian. Um, 
and and that I think I didn't really expect. Um, so I would call that kind of an unexpected challenge, uh, especially if you're the only or one of a few of both categories. You're sometimes you have to kind of like figure out how to process. You know, is this happening to me because of this or because of this? And um, that's kind of been an interesting. I guess that's a more of a processing challenge. Um, the other thing is, and I will say that I think um, like a lot of the bias toward women is so ingrained and very ingrained culturally that it is so common, like so, so, so common. And I think while like there's a lot of bias toward gay people, it's it's a different kind of bias and so it's con i mean the other huge difference is some people don't know i'm gay so that's been another unique challenge is so maybe sometimes like there would be somebody that would treat me differently if they knew but maybe they don't know and so that's also been kind of an interesting thing in academia to kind of navigate around but I've read this from some other like senior people that so like women that identify as queer in STEM fields they notice that it's like the treatment they get as a woman is worse but but I don't know if that's attributed to like people don't know they're part of the queer community. So, you know, thank you, Heather, for telling us your story. Um, there are a lot of people that will draw inspiration from you and how successful you've been in spite of or because of. And one thing I wanna comment is that those of us with intersecting identities shouldn't have to do the mental gymnastics to yes. figure out whether the treatment is because of this one yes. or that one that's we uh, yes I totally and that is the thing is I think it surprised me at how draining that processing can be like it doesn't feel good to be like okay I'm getting mistreated well one it doesn't feel good to get mistreated and then two, it doesn't feel good to have to try and process why you're being mistreated. And then if you do have intersecting identities, it adds another layer of like, you know, how do I get this treatment to end, right? So if I can figure out what's causing it, I can figure out how to get it to end. But if you get stuck in a loop because you can't identify why, that's really emotionally draining. It most definitely is emotionally draining. And if I could offer any like consolation to anyone that may be going through this, y'all, we don't have to know why. They're they're just buttholes. Yes. That's I think the biggest uh, <laughs> takeaway, right? Is that nobody should be mistreated. It doesn't matter why. So if you are being mistreated, you do not have to figure out why that person is treating you that way. You can get them, like not get them to stop, but you can express that it's hurting you to someone that you trust and somebody you know that will be an advocate and you yourself do not have to figure out why they're doing that to you 
Yeah, thank you for that. And which pretty much leads into my next question. So getting someone else to help is one piece of advice, but do you have other advice for researchers that may be struggling in their current institutions as it pertains to their gender or sexual identity and what can they do to build support around themselves? Yeah, this I think this is a really excellent question. Um, and I think sometimes the hard thing about um, getting support with uh, like gender identity or sexual orientation, um, it can be hard because sometimes you feel like you have to hide. And so one of one of the things I would say that um, has helped me personally is trying to seek out environments where you don't feel like you have to hide. Meaning, um, so I looked for a new job, what, two and a half years ago now, and I, I now have a new job. And when I was interviewing for positions, um, I came out in my interviews. I, it was clear to the chairs of the departments when I was interviewing that I had a female partner and um, that it was important to me that I was in a space where I was supported both as a woman and as a queer woman, right? So um, the hard thing with that is that because we're in a system that has power differentials, so even though um, US academia has like a flat hierarchy, there is still a lot of power in who's running things, right? Like as academic advisors, we have power over our students. I mean, whether it's real power or perceived power, it doesn't matter, it's power, right? When you're an untenured faculty member, the department chair has power over you, the dean has power over you, the university has power over you, right? So it is a very scary place to um, be someone that you think all of those people are not going to accept, right? And all the And your job is on the line, right? If you don't have tenure, you're worried about whether or not you're going to keep your job. So um, for, yeah, so for me, it also helped me to realize that working in environments where people do not respect me for who I am is not really a place I should be working anyway. And so I feel fortunate that my educational background, my experiences, they give me a skill set where I'm employable and many different areas. So at one point I just decided, you know, if I don't get tenure because of my sexual orientation, I will go work for some tech company somewhere and write Python code, right? Like I can try, I can get jobs elsewhere. So um that so my my advice would be to try and like be genuine to yourself and be comfortable with who you are. And then try to reach a place where you feel like you don't have to hide that. And if if you have to hide that to be able to keep your job or stay at the school you're at, then I think trying to find a pathway out is really good. And I know like for a lot of people, there is no pathway out. So if you have no pathway out, my advice would be to find um, friends, peers, mentors, that will support you and be your advocate. So it's really easy to support someone, right? To advocate for someone 
takes a little bit more effort, work, and energy. So really finding somebody that will advocate for you is important. And the first step to that is you have to be vulnerable, right? You have to open yourself up to people that you're interacting with and share your stories. And um, that can that can be very scary. But once you go through that, the end, the end result can be very um, rewarding and fulfilling. Thank you. Thank you for those solid, um, tangible steps. And we know that we can't do things in a vacuum. And when the structural support isn't there, it, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that there need there may need to be steps to find other, <laughs> yeah. other options. And yeah. I'd like to wrap up the conversation by asking about how you personally feel um, or your personal goals for inclusion and culture and academia in the future. But I want to preface that question by saying we can't do it alone without structural support. Yes, so while absolutely. I, <laughs> so while I I, yeah, while I am talking about your personal goals, yeah. I just want the audience to know that I know that we can't truly be free and succeed until we have support at all levels mm -hmm. in academia. So what are some of your personal thoughts about inclusion? Yeah, so this is, so per, my personal like motivations right now. So I guess I look at it like I have personal motivations to try and change the structural system, right? Like I am very fortunate I have tenure. So I don't, I have, I mean, you said you, when you met me, I was a very outspoken <laughs> person. Um, yeah, maybe I got a little even more outspoken after getting tenure, right? Because I don't have the same power struggles, right? So I think it's important that that I use that as a way to try and implement change um, for the structural systems that are there. And I think one of the, so one of the frustrating things for me is that these structural systems, when they want diversity, so they think like they only have to focus on the, um, the, the number count, right? And that's really unfortunate because when you bring people that are not like anyone else into an environment and you do not create systems for them to be successful or to feel comfortable or be included, they will not be successful. So for me personally, I want to uh, find ways that I can communicate with people in charge the importance of inclusion and the importance of changing um, ingrained culture so that we treat people better, right? I mean, it should like, it's all humans, right? We should be treating everyone great. Like it's it's one of those things that's so frustrating because it's like, what, like how is this still a problem, right? So it's, you know, trying, I try to have explicit examples, like when, this type of communication happens, it makes others feel like this, right? So trying to bring experiences to people that have not had to think about this before, right? 
so that maybe they'll start thinking about how they're communicating with people and the environments they're creating so that they can be more inclusive. The other thing is, is that as faculty, we really impact so many people, right? If one department influences hundreds, if not thousands of students. So how we're communicating with people and how we're treating people will trickle down to so many different people, both in terms of how they're going to treat people and in terms of how those people are getting treated. And so I think that's my big, my big thing recently is I would think that we need to denormalize the treatment that we've just accepted in academia, right? Like there's so much, oh, well, that's just because of this. There's so much normalizing of creating exclusive environments that I wanna, I personally wanna try and help denormalize that. I think another way is um, sharing stories. So coming, coming and talking to you today, if, I mean, if anybody watches this and they wanna reach out to me, <laughs> I will gladly talk to you on the phone, share my story, hear your story. So getting validation in the mistreatment is also really important. Wow. Wow. Just thank you. Thank you for being the, the bold voice that you have always <laughs> been and in this full circle moment. And y'all, when she says she'll help you, she's, she's not lying. Yeah. I'm, I mean it. I like, if there's one thing that I can give to people, it's, um, I can tell you the experiences I've had in the hopes that you do not have the same experience or in a way that we can commiserate because we had the same experience, right? So, I mean, it, it can serve a few different purposes, but, but people shouldn't feel alone. I feel like there's enough of us different people out there now that we can hopefully link to people that are similar to us so that that feeling of loneliness goes away or gets mitigated. Yeah. Well, I most certainly thank you and I thank you for over a decade of helping me feel included in this space y'all this is where I learned I could be comfortable in STEM so yes. with that this has been episode 12 of Under the Hood and we'll catch you in the next one